Let's look at the thought. This is 13 weeks of the main thought that I've tried to dig out well. I'll make some comments around several thoughts and then we'll jump straight to the Bible. Revival is the awakening of the conscience to the wisdom of God. My whole theme has been to bring us to a place that revival is deeper than just multiple services every night of the week where people are, are slain in the Spirit at the altar. I think those are definite moves of God, but I've tried to define revival as that God is trying to move a human into His wisdom and trying to place our life within His own thinking and His purpose and plans. And when you get there, what I'll say tonight, I pray will challenge you a little bit. When you get there and you, you've been revived, the goal is not to live in a constant state of revival. The goal is to learn to live inside the life of God and have His life inside you perpetually 24-7. Here's my thought. I took time to really think about this, of how I wanted to land tonight. And this was in my heart this morning. Every revival throughout history has had a beginning and an end. And that seems very superficial of a point and a thought, but it's very deep. Because it forces me to say, what do I believe about revival? Because if what we say we believe about revival is true, then there's no denying that every revival that's ever been throughout history had an end point to it. And if it's so profound, if the word revival is so profound, why does it end? We can talk about the Toronto revival back in the early 90s in Canada where people were driving all over and flying all over the world to go to Toronto, to the outpouring in Toronto. And then they called it the Toronto blessing that broke out all over our nation. And then that kind of dwindled and ended and then we had the Pensacola revival where Brownsville revival where people from again from all over the world would fly and travel and I had many friends that went and you would have to go and get there early in the morning and camp out on the sidewalk in a tent just to be able to get in the building. And I think it lasted five years of just testimony after testimony of life and healing and power and deliverance and uh, God just doing wonderful things all over the world. And then it ends. And if you go there today, there's empty buildings where the revival used to exist. The school of ministry that was there split and there was this big church split over it and so out of this beautiful revival comes a church split and the school goes north and south and the church is kind of a shell of, I'm not saying it's not a great church, but it's definitely not what it was during the revivals and some of the buildings uh, look pretty much unused. And if we go and talk about the Azusa Street, especially as Pentecostals, the Azusa Street that broke out in the 1900s and yet... Here we sit in 2023, and most kids today have probably never even heard about that. We had the Asbury Revival a few months back where everybody wanted to go to Asbury and see what God was doing on that campus, and they ended up shutting it down. They said no, and then everybody got mad at that. Like, how can you shut down what God wants to do? So this topic of revival, we would have to say that the reason we call it revival is it had a strange beginning to it, like... Something happened that triggered God is here different than normal. Uh, if you go back and look at the Brownsville revival, uh, the, son, the Father's Day that it broke out, it was not really even that strange of a thing. It was just a normal service. But out of a normal service, something stirred and they went five years. 
I was in a revival that lasted 17 weeks almost every night. But it, it just started off of a weekend gathering of bringing in an evangelist to speak. But we had people flood the altars and get delivered and set free. And uh, you, you weren't begging anybody to come. It was every night when the doors were open, people were flooding in to come and meet with God and meet with His Spirit. I was the one that was leading worship during that 17 weeks. It was one of the most profound things, and then it ended. We had to have the hard conversation. Are we going to keep this going and going and going, or do we need to have a harder conversation? God has done what God needed to do. Let's, let's close it. My dad said something to me years ago that's enlightening and thought-provoking. He said, many Spirit-filled people know how to begin well, but they don't know how to end well. We know how to start things, but we don't know how to finish them. We know how to go, woo, God is in the room, but then if we're not careful, we have to manufacture God being in the room because nobody wants to say, well, it's come to an end. Let's see what's next on the plate. And so if we're not careful, we can manufacture what we think is God, but it never is God. It just becomes human works. So I want to talk a little bit about that tonight, this thing called beginning and end, because the question is this. If revival is what we typically reason it to be, then why would it ever come to an end? Now, if you, uh, it would be impossible to just have, you know, okay, everybody give the definition, but if you had your definition of what is revival and you wrote it down, revival is, and you wrote out everything revival was to you and and how we would know if it came to Believer's Church. And is revival going to come to Believer's Church? And we have that. We have people press in, keep going, keep praying, keep believing. One day, one day the Spirit of God's going to break out. One day revival's coming. One day the oil's going to be poured out. And if we're not careful, we get into this carrot that's dangling out in front of us, chasing one day, and we miss the present moment of God right now. Because we want something profound that we miss the mundane. And, and some of that is true because revival is typically the profound and church is the mundane. But if you really think it through, the mundane, a carpenter's son, was the most profound thing that ever happened. And he was mundane in how he arrived on a donkey. And he was mundane in how he dressed. He was so mundane that the religious people of the day could not even sense God on him because it didn't fit their narrative of what it should be. So there, I had a conversation today that many times we, what we reason revival to be is not even godly. It's our own religious thinking. It's church going really long. It's, it's carpet time on the floor where everybody's slain in the Spirit and we just linger in the presence of God. Nothing wrong with any of that. It's, it's all a meaningful part of God. But if I'm not careful, it's the guy that's been married 25 years, but he's suddenly attracted to his secretary because his marriage has become mundane. If we're not careful as Christians, we suddenly lose the value of just hearing God's Word and knowing His Spirit for the excitement of energy that's in the room. And then because we're religious, we say things like this, well, the Spirit of God is no longer there. God has left that place. Like, who are we to determine whether God is on this church or Chapel Hill or full turn? 
Only because we're not impressed would we say, well, the Spirit of the Lord is not here. But what I read, if there's believers in the room, the Spirit is here. For wherever we're gathered together, even in the most mundane moment, if the Spirit of God is here, it's never mundane. But if I'm not careful, my eyes reason it to be something that it's not, and then therefore I become critical, and in my criticalness I miss the move of God because I can't get past mundane. But I think it's a fair question for us. If it's so spectacular to be in revival, why is there an end date? Why isn't Brownsville still going on? Toronto still going on? Why isn't Asbury still going on? There's a revival going on in North Georgia right now. I will be shocked if it keeps going forever because it would be the only time in history a revival's ever just kept perpetuatingly going on because every one of them has an end date. What I challenge ourselves is that many times the leaders don't want it to end because if it ends, we've conditioned ourselves that God has left the building. And we don't want to shrink back to the mundane of, well, open your Bibles. This is my Bible. I am what it says I am. And so I can lose sight of what God is trying to do. How many of you know God is trying to do something with His church? And that's where I want to get to. I love revival. If it comes, praise God. Here's the question. It takes you deeper. What is the end game of revival. Now this is where it's going to challenge us because anytime we ask, if we ask honestly, oftentimes the end game of revival has a selfish intent to it. It's why I'll drive 10 hours to go to a church that's not even mine because God is broke out there and I want to be part of that. I want, maybe it's a healing that I need. Maybe I hear there's healing, and so I want to drive eight hours to go get healed. Or maybe there's deliverances, so I'm going to take a friend of mine and take them down there and get them delivered because there's a special anointing. So there's it, nothing wrong with that. I, if you got to do it, you got to do it. There was a lady that was part of our family years ago who was dying of cancer, and she went to Catherine Kuhlman and got healed at Catherine Kuhlman's meeting, divinely healed. And then the cancer came back, and guess where she went again? Right back to Catherine Kuhlman. Because if we're not careful, we can idolize revival rather than appreciate what it is. And so my mind gets on, Catherine Kuhlman is my answer, rather than God used her in that moment, and maybe God wants to use something else now. And so I make something that shouldn't be God a God. And that can be a preacher that's doing the revival. It can be the church that's having the revival. And it can become about the preacher in the pulpit and the church and the people and what's going on. And in our excitement, which is normal, we lose sight that it's always been about Christ and suddenly it's become about us. And I think in those, it's where the end starts coming because in almost every revival, it's not like I've researched them all, but in the ones I've studied, in almost every revival, there is a pivot point where flesh and selfishness starts to take over. And we feel the need to keep pushing it. Versus just saying, okay, it's over and it's no longer here, so let's get busy with the next thing. 
And so I would like you to answer it rather than just me asking it. Maybe write it to yourself, jot it down in your notes. Like when you hear revival, what is the end game for you? If revival came to Believer's Church and tomorrow we had to meet and Friday we met and Saturday we met and we started meeting seven days a week, every night at 7.15. That means Miss Jennifer, all of her teams, all of Nessa's teams, our hospitality teams, all of Vanessa and her team cleaning the church every week, Michael having to do offerings and bills every day, Phil's having to not only manage the church itself, but now the revival itself. It becomes two entities. It becomes the church and then those that just come for the revival. And they start intermingling. Like, what would be the end game of that for us? Well, I would say for a while we would be excited. We'd be like, man, God's broke out. We'd be Instagramming and Facebook. It's at Believer's Church. You should come. And people would flood. They'd want to see what's going on. But, but when it's all over and we've burped and we've cut out the lights and we're driving home and we're tired and we're thinking we're coming back tomorrow, what is the end game we're looking for? More people to come, more freedom, more addicts get delivered, more baptisms in the water. Because all of those are part of it. They're things we can measure. We can measure how many people got baptized. We can measure how many people got slain in the Spirit. How many people got born again. But if all of that is what revival is, more salvations, more water baptisms, church is growing, why would it ever end? You should just keep it going perpetually all the time because more people in the kingdom. So is it because we can't? We'll wear out? We'll get tired? Or was it never God's intent to do it that way? Galatians 4 gives us the end game. Oh, my dear children, verse 19. I feel as if I'm going through labor pains here for you again, and they'll continue until Christ is fully developed in your life. Paul just gives us the end game of it all. He said, I feel like a woman about to give birth because what I really want is not revival. I want Christ to be fully developed in your life. Amen. And I can say this, revival is a wonderful thing. I'm going to teach this tonight, so it won't just be my... It'll be my opinion. You don't have to agree with it, but I'll try to back it up with why. I don't think revival fully develops you. I think it inspires us, but it doesn't develop us. It moves me from one spot to the next. But he said, it's like a woman in labor until you're fully developed. How many of you know full development doesn't happen in a 16-week revival? Full development is until we have your funeral and put you in the ground. And probably then you weren't fully developed. You were still maturing. So one reason revival can be a hindrance is it doesn't answer the reality that the goal is to mature and that's lifelong. It's not an emotional period of time we call revival. Because with every revival, when it ends, the real cataclysmic problem is who will remain to grow up. Because the goal is to grow us up. It's not to get us in the door and baptize us. It's not to get us in the door and get us slain in the Spirit. It's that we would grow up. Now, I love revival, but it doesn't grow you up. You want to know what grows you up? Hang out with people that irritate you for the long haul. 
sit in a church and have a shepherd or a leader teach something you don't want to learn, but you know you need to learn it because they know your junk and they're calling it out of you. So until you're fully developed is the goal. Do you know, he says in Galatians 4, that how I feel right now until Christ's life becomes visible, this is the same scripture, different version. He says, do you know how I feel right now? And will feel until Christ's life becomes visible in your life like a mother in the pain of childbirth. The, the beauty of revival is that Christ's life is visible in a group of people, but the, the goal is that His life is to be visible in me. And there's a lot of people that come to revival and experience His life like, oh, my back was hurting, my back is healed, and they go out the door going, I got my back healed at that revival. But at the end of the night, the life of Christ was never fully developed in them. Because they just kept coming back for things they needed rather than really asking, am I growing here? Am I becoming a stronger person here? So what I often find, and this is speculation, but it feels good. So opinion and speculation. I find that the depth of maturity in a person, they don't really pursue revival as much. Because they're, they're living in a state of maturity with Christ that they're not pursuing something out here else. I'm not saying you wouldn't go and you wouldn't go, man, let me check that out. But when you have an intimacy and a depth with Him in a personal way, you're not needing a Holy Ghost B12 shot every 12 hours. Because you know Him. So many times revival may be for people that are, don't know Him and they need the experience and they need the challenge and they need to see the life and they need to see the excitement and we go, come, you got to come, you got to meet Him. But after you've met Him and after you've touched Him and after He's touched you, the dirty work begins. you got to grow up. you got to mature. you got to get in church with people you don't like. No, I just want to go back to the revival. We can and we will, but one day... He's going to call you higher. All right? Now, I'll tell you this. Give me two mature people. You can change the world with them. Because they don't get their feelings hurt. Been there, done that. They got the scars of ministry to prove it, but you can't shut them up. They've worked through it. They know a depth. They're in it. I'm about to tell you why. They're in it for a different reason. What is the end game of revival? Here's the answer. It's Christ is fully developed. Uh, yeah, Christ fully developed Christ in your life. I misspelled that. But it should be Christ is fully developed in your life. That's the end game. And if you need revival to start that, like sometimes we do, we need jumper cables. I go out, oh, my car won't start. Can you hook up brother up to some extra power? And it jumps off. But at the end of the day, if your alternator's not changed, you're going to have to get jumped off everywhere you go. And that's how most people treat revival. They're constantly hopping around looking for somebody with jumper cables to keep them excited spiritually because there's broken things in their life they never want the Holy Ghost to touch. Somebody old me, I have to say, dude, we're tired of jumping you off. You either need a new car, an alternator, or something here. But we treat revival like it's just a shot of power, and that's good. Sometimes you need somebody to put gas in your car. 
But after a while, it's like, bro, you're going to have to learn how to manage that little empty thing a little better. We're all having to come pick you up on the side of the road because you're empty. So am I making sense? I'm not putting revival down. Like, I'm for it. I love it. But I'm trying to balance how it fits with New Testament versus just our emotionalism of what it is. And what I love what Pastor Phil said today. We went to lunch and he said, I just wish the word revival would just get out of our language. I don't even see it in Scripture. It's not. If you go type revival, it shows up about three times and it has nothing to do with the church. It has to do with little rotten Israel out here that needs to be revived. There's something, take a picture of this or write it down. I usually don't go this way outside of biblical things, but there's something called the Heidelberg Catechism. It was developed, I think, in the 1500s in Germany because what they wanted to do is they wanted to make sure that the churches that were being planted and birthed and the Christians that were coming were learning what they needed to learn in the right way. So they got down, and I think they did like seven days. If you Google it, uh, you can go to Heidelberg Catechism. It'll give you the whole plan. Day one, day two, day three. You can study it. It's a great devotional. But the Heidelberg Catechism started out with the first question. And the first question is paradoxical. But if you can answer it, it, it starts making sense. Here's the first question that they ask. What is your only comfort in life and death? So you get to answer that. Your question tonight is, what is your only comfort in life and death? You can't have different comforts for dying and different comfort for life. You get one. And the question of how we answer it is many times we have comforts for life, the things I want and wish and desire, and then the comforts of death, I just need to make sure I'm saved so I don't go to hell. But the question doesn't bid that you can separate it. The question bids that there needs to be something that is your only source of comfort in both living and dying. And so we try to pull that out. We'll see if I can do it. It, it bemoans itself to the great paradox, and it's this, number one, what is your only comfort in life? Well, first, well, it's just about us. It's what we need. It's what we want. It's bread on the table. It's water. It's food. It's love. It's being loved. It's having friends. It's, it's, it's about us. The other paradox, it's not about you at all. And it's in this paradox that Christians get caught up. Because Christianity in itself hits this paradox because Christianity says it is all about you. He died for you. He adopted you. He made you His own. OPS, it's not about you at all. It's about His plans and purposes. So it's a paradox. And if I'm not careful, I can get stuck in one or the other and become a very weak, anemic Christian. Because it's not all about you. But yet we market it, it's all about you. He'll heal you, bless you, fix you, give you money, give you a house, get you in college, give you a husband, give you a wife, whatever you need, get you off drugs. He will do whatever. He'll get you that car you need. He'll get you in college. Whatever you need, He'll do it. But then when He doesn't do it, people fall off, become agnostic and atheists. 
But then when we say, well, it's not about you, it's just about Him. Okay, yes, but no, because He did make it about us because He made us. And when He made humans, He said, it is about you because I love you, but it's also about me. And I have found that this probably pastoring and even in my own life becomes the great paradox when Mark makes it about himself and forgets it's about God or when I get so bemoaned, poor pitiful me, that I forget forget God does love me and I just have this poor pitiful me mentality. I want to teach this of how it fits tonight. I'll try to do it shortly. Ephesians 1, 8. He has showered us in His kindness. It's about me. That sounds me, isn't it? All along with His wisdom and understanding, God has now revealed it to us, this mysterious will regarding Christ. Yes, it's about me. See, I got kindness. And it says, oh, wait a minute, but that was to fulfill His good plan. Oh, man. I thought He existed for my plan. No. But He did shower you with kindness. It is about you, but it was about His plan. So that what I can gather from that is everything God is doing in me is for His glory. That's the end game for God, His glory. And if I'm not careful, I'll make it about my glory. What, what he need, let me tell you what He's done for me. Instead of, let me tell you what He's done. And, okay, for me. Because in the end, it's His good plan. And so He's working something, and that's what I've been trying to teach, that when I get in His good plan, my life just works. If I could ever come to the place that it's about Him, and I can really strive after that, then about me just works. He even says it that way. If you will seek me first, great paradox, I'll give everything else you need to you. That's that paradox. You must seek my kingdom first. Oh, but I haven't forgotten. It is about you. I'll take care of houses and lands and kids and cars and money. Furthermore, Ephesians 1.11, because we're united with Christ, we've received an inheritance. Yes, it's about me. I told you it's about me. For He chose us in advance and He makes everything work out. Oh, man, according to His plan. Man. There's that maybe why many people never really see the blessings in their life is they never make their life about His plan. It's about their own plan. And they're mad that God is not on their team working their plan. Because they never settled the great paradox. It's all about Him, but when it's all about Him, He takes care of you, so therefore it is about you too. But when you make it about you chasing Him, you'll never get there. Now I'm going to pull all this together. What does this have to do with revival? Because typical, not every time, but typical, revival, it's all about us. Oh my God, you got to come. God's showing up. So-and-so got touched. I got healed. He fixed my knee. My back's better. My marriage was broken. Drug addicts are being delivered and set free. And it's just the kindness of God just poured out on a bunch of raunchy people. And we're all like, oh, we make t-shirts. We put it on Instagram and Facebook. Oh, God is just there. Oh, you ought to see the lives that are being changed. So there is an aspect of revival where God just showers kindness on a bunch of raunchy people that don't even deserve it. And God's just, just messing people up. But what I've learned over the years is church isn't about us at all. 
And many times we want church to be revival. And the greatest thing you can do as church is realize church is never about you. It's always about His body. And yes, you play a part. And yes, you're needed. But in the body is how you're going to grow up. Because in revival, you don't need other people. You just need to show up and let God work. But in the church, you need each other. You need other people's gifts. You need the apostles and prophets, evangelists and pastors and teachers and to be discipled and to grow and to... And I'm not saying it's all or none. I'm just saying most revival is a very about us and what God is doing in us humans. And church is more about, gosh, this isn't about us at all, man. This is about His kingdom and His glory. And I'm plugging away with a bunch of people that can irritate me, but we're working the same plan here and we're taking His kingdom and not our own. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you realize your body's the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? This hurts. You don't belong to yourself. That, that doesn't sell t-shirts. God bought you with a high price, so you must honor God with your body. Romans 14, 7. For we don't live for ourselves or die to ourselves. If we live, it's to honor the Lord. If we die, it's to honor the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. Christ died and rose again for this very purpose, to be Lord both of the living and the dead. I wrote this thought. This is where we'll end. I'll ask Michael to come and let's get ready. We're just going to end with some worship tonight. It's the local church and not revival that fully develops you. It's the local church and not revival that fully develops you. If revival breaks out in other churches, I encourage you to go. I encourage, if it's here, I encourage it here. If, if it's at, you know, another church in town, go. If God is moving, go. But after you've experienced the touch and the presence, know that God is ultimately going to try to put you with a body of people you can grow old with and who know you and who can keep you accountable and call you forth and grow you up and speak life into you. I'll tell you this of what I know. It's, it's one thing entirely to listen to a stranger preach to a thousand people versus a shepherd who knows you intimately. When a shepherd knows us intimately and speaks into our life and knows the challenges, it can call out the greatness of God in us. I'll give you a few scriptures and then we'll worship together. Now these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers, and their responsibility. See, it's the responsibility of the church to equip God's people to do His work and to build up the church. One thing I know about revival, I don't know if it equips us as much as it impresses us. It is an impressionable thing. I've been in them, and I can still say I remember the moment when I felt the presence of God come into that car when we were doing revival, and the three pastors, we were talking about it. You, I felt His presence come in that car. All three grown men just start sobbing and crying. That was 17 weeks of God doing great things, but when it ended... That wasn't the thing that kept Mark Evans in the game. And a lot of those people I know that were in that revival dissipated and never got in a church. They never plugged in anywhere. 
Some did plug in places and ultimately got mad and quit. They don't go anywhere today. Because the end goal of revival is that God showers His kindness upon humanity, but the reason He showers His kindness on humanity is to bring them into His body so His body can grow them up and mature them. Final scripture, Ephesians 4. Get ready, this stings a mite. And this maturity, equipping, continues until we all come into such unity of our faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to the full, complete standard of Christ. And it's that Scripture that really answered the question, if revival is so incredible, why don't they continue perpetually? Why do they end? And my belief is they end because God says now is the season to mature. God is a God of seasons. God is a God of time. And I believe there are times He pours out His Spirit in what we call revival and new fresh life comes and new fresh salvations and new fresh healings come and God is getting the glory and we're all praising Him. And then in a moment, God backs off and says that, that season is up. Now I need the body to grow up my kids. And in that moment when God steps back and says, I'm done performing, I need you to grow my children up through the gifts of the Spirit, through my Word, through preaching, that if we're not careful, it becomes mundane. And we just let it go. And we don't... Basically, the revival that God wanted to grow more people, we never grew them up. We just kept them in kindergarten, always wanting perpetual recess rather than growing us up. So this is my final take on 13 weeks. Here's how I think God does it. I think God pours out His Spirit on a church like ours. And suddenly we grow. When I got here with Robin, we were at about 105 people. Now we have about 400. We're adding a service on Saturday to make room. But what I've noticed is, is that God brings the growth and there comes this measure of growth and then things just kind of stable for a while. And if we're not careful, it feels like, well, where's God? Nothing's going on. Why? And I believe in those moments of just flat plain, God is giving us the ability to say, the growth that I brought, can you handle the discipleship? The growth that I brought you, can you grow my children up? And if you will prove faithful at this step, I will pour out again and you can prove faithful. So that the way I think God grows His church, He pours out His Spirit. He sees how we handle that. And if we handle it well, He'll pour it out and give more because He will only give to us what we can handle. And what do we have to handle? Can we fully grow people up? So I, I'm good for revival. I pray, Lord, come, come, Lord, come. Bring the cars, bring the people. But at the end of the day, guess what? God's going to say, do you really want revival, Richard, Chris? Do you really want revival? Do y'all really want it? Because after they come, I'm going to require you to open your home and grow people up. I'm going to require you to disciple them, cry with them, help them change their alternators, and love on them. Stand up with me and let's pray.